The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Did you know that we've built more microgrids in the U.S. than anyone else? These self-contained electrical networks allow you to generate your own electricity on-site and use it when you need it most. Keep your power on during a grid outage. Store electricity and sell it back during peak demand times. Integrate with renewables such as wind and solar. With a microgrid, you get energy control on your terms. See what's possible at www.se.com US microgrid. The Interchange is brought to you by Bloom Energy. Bloom Energy is transforming the way businesses and communities take charge of their energy supply through resilient, predictable, and zero-carbon solutions. Bloom's on-site energy platform provides unparalleled control for those looking to secure clean, reliable, 24-7 power that scales to meet critical business needs. Today's energy challenges are unprecedented and widespread. Bloom's platform eliminates outage and price risk while accelerating us all toward a zero-carbon future. Find the links in the show notes. You know, the energy system wasn't built overnight and we're not going to change the whole global energy system and go 100% solar everywhere at once. But we need to build a hell of a lot of solar and a hell of a lot of wind and some storage and some green hydrogen and demand response and EVs and all of these things at once. The use of copper in solar manufacturing and how it could send the cost of production plummeting. Plus, solar supply chains and overcoming NIMBYism. This is The Interchange, Recharged. I'm David Banmiller, your new host. Welcome. Why Recharged? Well, many of you have been with us on The Interchange for over 200 episodes, as we've dug deep into topics around clean energy tech and the energy transition. Now that Shale has moved on to other projects, it's my turn to pick up the baton and move the conversation forward. My commitment to you as the new host is to stay true to the premise of the show. As always, I'll be joined by expert guests to discuss and debate topics relevant to the energy transition. I can't wait to get started, so let's get right into it. Let's talk solar manufacturing. Solar has been seen as one of the best renewable energy sources and is considered a top-tier investment in the energy game. Although it's praised for its low maintenance costs and long-term savings, it's still a hefty investment in terms of individual finance cost, manufacturing, and installation. The production of solar panels requires expensive raw materials, such as high-grade silicon and silver for the wiring and cells. If the industry could just get the cost of materials down, the climate and environmental benefits would extend far beyond the energy sector. Last month, a company called SunDrive Solar, founded in 2015, received certification from the Institute of Solar Energy Research Hamlin that their commercially sized silicon solar cell had achieved a 25.54% efficiency. This surpassed the previous world record, a 25.26% held by Long Eye Solar, the world's leading manufacturer of solar modules. What makes this achievement so astounding is that they used copper to pull the electric current from the solar cells instead of silver, which is the industry standard. Copper is cheaper and more widely available, highlighting the potential impact to the industry. Innovations like these could jumpstart a boom in solar adoption. Joining me on the interchange today is Jonathan Gifford, journalist and editor-in-chief of PV Magazine, an independent, technology-based publication. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi, David. It's uh, very nice to be with you, and it sounds like you've got a good program lined up. Thanks again. You know, first off, as you know, solar has seen significant growth in the past couple of years. I think 2020 was a record year, and despite the impact of the pandemic... 
I'd be curious as to your thoughts in in terms of what what do you think are the drivers behind that growth? And do you think it's sustainable? I mean, we're going to see that more in the future or do you see it plateauing at some point? Just your thoughts around that. Okay, what's behind the growth? It, well, it's just demand, right? It's it's global efforts to decarbonize. And that's on a policy front and that that's also from an investment front, which is, you know, the part you're deeply engaged with. You know, there's a desire from investors for sustainable investment. And the other side of that is there's, you know, a, a demand for energy. Energy is, a, you know, a key component in, in life and, and solar's um, one of the sources of, of energy and electricity and an increasingly growing one, as you say. But you know, all of that is underpinned by tremendous cost reductions, which I'm sure many of your listeners would be familiar with. You know, just a very, very broad kind of ballpark figure is something like a 90% cost reduction over the last 10 years. And if anything carves that much cost out of the equation, then it's going to become increasingly desirable for investors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've always said the energy transition needs multiple people to come together uh, for its success, right? You need the governments, you need the investors, and and you also need the consumers, right? Because consumers are are all for energy transition and clean energy to the extent they're not paying 10, 15, 20 times more than what they're paying today. So I agree with you that bringing those costs down is, is critical. And it sounds like the step in the direction with the technology is helping with those cost reductions. Yeah, like, and cost has two parts to it when it comes to, to solar energy. And that's one part is just driving the cost out of production. So, you know, one of the really big innovations that perhaps doesn't get, uh, you know, not many people know about is, is the use of diamond wires to cut PV wafers from ingots. And, you know, it, it was a number of years in, in the pipeline, but it just reduced the amount of polysilicon that was being consumed to deploy each solar wafer, to carve each solar wafer out from the, the raw ingot. And it also allowed monocrystalline technology, which are kind of the solar cells that have that more uniform black color as opposed to the kind of motley multi-crystalline ones and monocrystalline is also just higher efficiency so you know this is really upstream solar manufacturing diamond wire was incredibly important in terms of driving monocrystalline technology into the mainstream making it the same cost if not cheaper than multi-crystalline and so you saw both efficiencies jump up at the same time as uh, costs declined. So, you know, that's an example of an innovation where cost and efficiency are kind of uh, coalescing. And then this innovation that you've talked about, SunDrive, um, potentially could have the same impact in that, as you said, it's very high efficiency. And also at the same time, it's using copper for its metallization, which is cheaper than silver. And, you know, a lot of people point to silver as being a potential material supply bottleneck or cost bottleneck for solar, particularly high efficiency solar um, in the future. Do you see any additional innovations in the future that may be on the drawing board right now? Because it seems like the efficiency and the cost reductions that we've seen also helped with the adoption of of solar. Do you see anything that uh, comes out at you or that you're aware of that we could expect going in in the next couple of years? Well, the very big hyped technology is perovskites. So it's a relatively new semiconductor material there's been a lot of development in terms of making perovskites pushing its efficiency up and also pushing its lifetime, making it less kind of prone to rapid degradation, making it more stable, really, as a semiconductor material. And 
the potential to stack perovskites onto traditional solar cells, whether they're just a, a perk solar cell, which is kind of mainstream uh, industry technology, or a heterojunction solar cell, which is um, where you're already stacking uh, semiconductor layers. So you've got the base uh, crystalline silicon layer, um, probably, uh, and, and then you then you put an amorphous silicon layer on top of that, and then stack on top of that the perovskite. So then you've got three different semiconductor layers, um, which are each kind of capturing different um, uh, sunlight bandwidths. And this looks like a really high efficiency technology. Whether they can actually, the producers can get it stable enough, can mass produce it, um, you know, that's the test to be seen. But but I think it's also important, like, we, we tend to look at uh, these kind of next generation technologies with clean tech. You know, we're often saying, what's going to be the technology that's going to just make this breakthrough? But really, a lot of the progress that's been made in solar photovoltaics that we've observed at PV Magazine, you know, over the years, whoops, and I dropped my pen, that we've observed at PV Magazine over the years has been just incremental improvements, right? You just need to make another small step that drives the cost down and or pushes the efficiency up. And and also scale, right? The the industry has scaled tremendously and, and China has played an absolute key role in in being able to do that. And, you know, credit to the Chinese industry. A lot of people accuse them of having kind of um, lots of subsidies from, from the Chinese government or, or regional governments or local governments. But at the end of the day, they are very effective and have proven to be very effective at making cheap, good PV products. And at the end of the day, you know, we don't really need a breakthrough. It's just about continuing to evolve, continuing to each generation, being slightly more efficient, lasting for a few years longer, better quality materials, slightly reducing that silver content in every single solar cell. And it kind of just stacks up and, and becomes very compelling. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you look at just light bulbs, right? I mean, you continue to see new light bulbs being rolled out that are higher efficiency, that are longer lasting. I agree with you, just continuing the improvement. I think there's a lot of passion behind solar to continue that, uh, that development and that ingenuity that, that's driving this industry forward. And it also takes the governments, right, with the incentives to help with, with the, the cost reductions, not only the technological and development, but the governments. And at COP26, President Biden had made a comment about thinking that the energy transition is going to happen overnight is, is not realistic, right? And so it is, it is done in kind of a measured, measured approach. And the Build Back Better agenda that President Biden, the, the, first, uh, the first portion recently passed last week, uh, there's supposed to be a follow-on that they'll be debating in the coming weeks as well. A lot of the incentives were stripped out of that, that initial one with some more along the lines of electric vehicles. But I think to the extent that second piece of legislation is pushed forward, you're going to see a lot more incentives within that for not only solar, but wind, all types of renewable sourced energy. Do you see globally other governments kind of taking that initiative coming out of COP26 or even outside of that to help further with the cost reductions and just add those additional incentives for further development? Yeah, there's, you know, there's a lot going on. And, and, you know, you would know better than me, having been in the energy industry a long time, policy and energy kind of go hand in hand. I think rather than incentives, what is needed more widely on an international level for solar is is kind of getting out of the way and letting the industry deploy 
right? You mentioned in your intro, you know, rising nimbyism. And, and you know, I consulted with my PV Magazine USA editors just earlier, and, and they were telling me that it's really, they're seeing much, much more nimbyism activity on a state-by-state level. Some states are, are kind of empowering nimby activists more than others and putting roadblocks up in the way for solar. But it also applies to things like grid access and just being able to, to access the grid that you need to be able to put the solar energy into the grid in a timely manner and at a, at a price point that, that um, solar developers can do. So uh, I think rather than saying, you know, we need to alter tariffs or we need to provide you with upfront subsidies, it's rather more just kind of clearing the way and letting us uh, get on with it a little bit. So it's really less the incentives and kind of government control to help push that along. It's really just opening it up and allowing for the market to bring the the producers and the consumers together in a more open environment with with less kind of regulation if you will and it's just providing the landscape for it to succeed yeah exactly and and the the landscape of solar for the last 10 years has been one of peaks and troughs and of this kind of that you know they call it the solar coaster within the solar industry because changes of policy just causes these weird spikes in demand and then followed by a trough and you know the industry's always kind of scrambling to meet supply in certain markets and then they have to refocus on another one and push that in while there's some kind of subsidy program coming into effect. But really what is more effective and, and at the price point solar is today is is really just this kind of regulatory stability that will allow the industry to continue to scale, continue to make those investments in manufacturing infrastructure and then all of the associated infrastructure to just continue scaling this industry in, in a more linear fashion. And that will also give you know investors some sense of security um, in terms of the investments they're making. And, and I think that's all predicated on solar's price point being such that it is competitive with a whole range of energy sources. And that competitiveness is only continuing to, to grow. It's a manufactured technology product and we've seen with other semiconductor devices like computer hard drives and remember the first external hard drive you bought the kind of size and cost of that thing you know it's not exactly the same but it's a it's a similar technology right it's a it's a semiconductor technology and once you scale it it gets cheaper we get better at making this stuff and you know there are some really interesting developments like in china the green power trading market was launched really just a couple of weeks ago and this will allow chinese corporations or, or companies that are active in china to contract through a market with solar energy and wind energy um, providers or project owners in a kind of not a directly bilateral way but they're going to contract with um, them by virtue of exchanges and you know this is really important let corporations sign these ppas um, as part of their efforts to decarbonize and let us build the projects yeah the other interesting piece is as you said solar over the past few years has been you know peaks and troughs going through and i think that there's probably a, a number of different reasons for that whether it's public sentiment but one of the things that that strikes me is I'm in Texas, and so earlier this year we had the winter storms, right? And and so there was a lot of negativity around the renewable sources of energy. And I think energy storage, obviously, which is a whole different topic with the technology and everything with, with that. But how do you get over some of those those weather hurdles like that that I think is 
your your general consumer may have concerns on that, whether founded or unfounded. It, it, it's out there and may may make them a little bit hesitant when they're looking at solar uh, for their residential use, or even if their their company has a has a building for for more of a commercial use. What would you say to to help further that discussion? Yeah, like if it's down to the individual consumer you know, they're connected to the grid anyway. So their lights, unless there's a very severe um, storm event or something like happened in, in Texas, but, you know, that's up to the grid operator. They go, they should sort that out. Um, but or, or it was a market failure or it's something bi- bigger. It's not the failure of the sun not rising in the morning. And, and yeah, there is definitely seasonal variability with solar um, production and there are um, darker parts in the world where the difference between summer and winter production like here in Berlin where um, I'm situated you know this time of year is not a great time for solar but the sun does rise every day Um, and there are overcast times and even weeks at a time but you know solar will still produce um, something it will be reduced if there is cloud cover but there's also a hell of a lot of sunny parts of the world and um, we're also seeing there's a lot of kind of economic growth in the sunnier sunnier parts of the world and and there is a lot of increasing energy demand you know in the sunbelt region so this makes solar a pretty good fit but actually that's the big global picture for the homeowner you know it really is you're connected to the grid don't worry about it. The group, that's what the grid's there for. We've all paid for it with our taxes or, or through our energy bills over the years. Use the grid. You don't want to island yourself off. And um, then the other part of it is, of course, battery technology. And, and battery technology is advancing rapidly. There's a huge amount of battery manufacturing capacity, lithium-ion predominantly, but there is um, you know, a growing menu of battery flavors that are being developed at the moment. And primarily, they're, they're got being developed to supply the EV market, the electric vehicle market, which is scaling incredibly rapidly. And solar has the opportunity to more or less piggyback on the back of that and and just take a little bit of that capacity for kind of batteries that can go into your garage or into the basement of a commercial property. And you know, that really will be enough not to go fully off grid, but again, you don't need to, but to smooth out, kind of shift a bit of that solar production into the evening when you're going to be coming home and putting the kettle on and cooking your dinner, um, hopefully with your induction cooktop and these kind of things or charging your EV and just kind of shifting a bit of that demand. And then there's also a lot of, uh, there's a whole heap of you know, demand response markets that can be created um, on a kind of um, grid level and um, other ways we can kind of shift demand a little bit um, through smart home and on an individual level, you know, you can turn on your washing machine in the middle of the day when the sun's out and and these kind of things through home automation. So it's not just about what are we going to do if there's a cloudy day. There's there's actually a whole kind of suite of tools available um, that can kind of help you match up your demand with your with your supply and get you through some of those tricky parts of the day when the sun isn't shining. And as we go through the energy transition, obviously, I think gas is probably going to be playing a tremendous role uh, through the energy transition. I think, in, depending on your location, I think right now you've got maybe gas leading the way with solar as a backstop. And I think what we're all trying to get towards is where you have the renewable sources such as solar as front and center and gas becomes more of 
that maybe shifting the supply somewhere when it's needed and more of the backdrop. I mean, do you see that shift eventually happening or do you, what do you think needs to kind of happen to put the renewables really in the driver's seat and have your fossil fuels more as the back seat and, and filling up demand where necessary? Just a lot more renewables, right? <laughs> Just lots, lots more solar and wind. And you're going to have to build more capacity than you need for any point of time. You know, it's about an overbuild of solar and wind. But these are the very big pictures that perhaps I don't have the, the best insights into. These are the guys that do them, you know, incredibly sophisticated models. Um, and, you know, there will be periods wind production is more variable so so that's potentially more difficult in terms of smoothing and when it comes to seasonal smoothing that's when things like green hydrogen can potentially become interesting and there are parts of the world where there's a good correlation between wind production and solar production you know places on the coast where the land is cheap and you can build vast amounts of solar and vast amounts of wind and then run electrolyzers at very high capacity factors and potentially then export that green hydrogen and there's a number of countries that are kind of jockeying for position to develop these first kind of um, green hydrogen export hubs Um, but how they actually develop you know we're we're still um, yet to see that and it may maybe green ammonia might be produced before green hydrogen just because of some of the transportation issues and but that's yeah, more or less the uh, I think a promising development, and I think that that solar will play play a really important role in green hydrogen production. Absolutely, and that's another interesting point, is that some people tend to look at renewables as okay. Well, I'm just going to have solar, and solar is going to replace everything for me. And and what you're bringing up is really not the case, right? I mean, even right now or historically, you've had the choice between coal gas, a number of different fossil fuel sources to help power the electricity. And what you're kind of saying now is it's not going to be just solar, but you're going to be looking at more of a renewable landscape. So it's going to be a combination of solar, wind, hydrogen, things like that, that are going to be able to level uh, the supply of it, depending on seasonal or storm-related type disruptions. Yeah, exactly. And you're not going to replace coal overnight, but you know there's a certain amount of coal generation um, in Asia where they, where they do import. You know, I'm talking about Japan or South Korea or something like that, where they import um, all of their coal and huge amounts of LNG of um, liquefied natural gas. And you know they can actually just swap out maybe 20% or X amount of that coal for green hydrogen just as a first step. So it's a step by step. You have to just incrementally make these changes, but we need to make them for climate change um, uh, to confront climate change, make these incremental steps as soon as possible and as quickly as possible. So we're not going to change, you know, the energy system wasn't built overnight and we're not going to change the whole global energy system and and go 100% solar everywhere at once. But we need to build build a hell of a lot of solar and a hell of a lot of wind and some storage and some green hydrogen and demand response and EVs and all of these things at once. And it can look it can look kind of um, intimidating or giddying for if you try and take it on all at once. But 
these changes can be made and they're very often complementary. You know, switching to EVs helps the stationary storage market. And then the EVs can do some grid smoothing potentially with vehicle to grid capabilities when they're plugged into the garage. You know, the network operator might be able to use it for a bit of grid smoothing or for, you know, um, a bit of uh, these kind of services to the grid like frequency response and these kind of things. So it's, it's this integrated system. I really like the metaphor of, um, you know, it, it's we're going to an energy network that, that where there'll be producers and prosumers and consumers all interacting in a very dynamic way. Yeah, that's great. It's nice to see the energy around it, right? I mean, just coming out of COP26, it seems like it was so much more publicized and there was a lot more interest than historical years. And you're seeing that momentum, you're seeing that energy around it. And it's just nice to see to help propel everyone to that energy net you said, that's going to be much more renewable and, and the clean tech focused. Yeah, and, and consumers can play a really important role, which is really exciting. You know, these are consumers who are going to be prosumers, that are going to have solar on their roof. They might have a battery. They, they might have an EV. They might have an app where they're looking at their power generation on their roof. Like, who would have ever thought electricity consumers would act that way? There might be time of use pr- pricing, which very uh, like likely there will be, because you, you want to disincentivize people from all turning on their devices all at the same time in the evening when there's no solar. You know, you need to incentivize them to drag that that consumption into the middle of the day when everyone's solar is going to be producing. Have, have more parents yelling at their kids to <laughs> stop messing with the thermostat, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or shut the front door. Yeah. Um, you know, on that really quick, how do you try to get beyond the nimbyism? Right, because that's something that that you see a lot. As some areas have continued to vote for renewable types of installations, but then when it obstructs their view or they don't like the aesthetics on on the rooftop, whatever. What do you think can help get people over that hurdle? Because obviously there's a lot of value to it. And the long-term benefits are the maintenance, the long-term savings to this. So they're, they're huge, but sometimes you just have to get people over that initial hurdle. I think... Solar does have to get more attractive. That's that's uh, for rooftop. If if it's going to be in the suburbs, if it's going to be, I quite like the phrase ubiquitous solar. You know, it's going to be all around us. So it has to get more attractive. And there are some developments there. It's pretty slow progress, if I'm perfectly honest. You know, we had the Tesla solar roof, which looks amazing, but you know they've had all sorts of problems bringing that to market um there's another company um gaf energy in the us who are looking at just integrating solar panels into the roof structure um in france they do that as well kind of as it's kind of mandated so there are efforts to make solar more attractive it's perhaps not going as fast as it should do um and then in terms of the large-scale solar, I think we need um, less misinformation about solar. Um, and, you know, there, there is a lot of pushback and there has been a lot of campaigning against solar and wind in particular. Wind have copped it much worse than solar has. It's easier that solar is harder to see and a solar module looks a bit less frightening than a huge big wind array. Um, yeah, I think misinformation plays a key role, but it's also up to solar to do better, right? We have to make 
modules for or panels for the residential customer that look really cool that integrate seamlessly into the built environment bipv building integrated photovoltaics is an area that's always been interesting to make solar modules that you know seamlessly integrate with a building facade for commercial building owners and that's been very slow progress as well um and then just for solar developers they just have to do a better job at communicating with their their neighbors we're going to need to have solar everywhere a part of our fields and lives and we just have to be smarter about how we integrate it and creating barriers so people can't see it from their homes potentially if if we can at all do that and then the final step is kind of also integration in with other industries so we're seeing some quite interesting developments um floating pv is doing quite well just whacking pv onto onto lakes and onto dams particularly interesting at hydro facilities when you've already got the big um grid connection there um, and then it's beautiful kind of operating your floating solar in partnership with the hydro. It's kind of like a virtual battery. And we're also seeing a lot of development in, in Europe. It's very early stage, but we are seeing development and momentum about agri-PV or agrovoltaics. <laughs> How do I say that? I'm going to go that again. Agri-PV or agri-photovoltaics or something like that. It's a new industry. We're still making up the terminology. But this is um, really some quite cool structures that are kind of purpose-built so you can have solar over vineyards or solar over uh, berry farms. And the advantage is that if, if it's designed well, it can increase yields. It can mean you let you less stuff like plastics which they put over berry fields um, some certain berries and so it can be a win for the farmer you're integrating solar into the agriculture into the existing culture you know it's human culture as well you're not kicking farmers off to turn their farms into solar fields and so it's about working with communities and working with existing industries and culture yeah that's great I mean it's gonna be a combination of the technological development as well as the momentum that we're seeing I mean I I hear people talking more about getting solar panels for their homes more than, you know, just 24 months ago. And hopefully that misinformation ceases, but people are really starting to understand the long-term benefits, but they're also feeling the momentum behind the energy transition and that it really is a direction that we're going. It's not a fad. It's not just something that's going to be something in the history books. It's here to stay and it's going to continue and it's going to continue to grow. And so with everybody coming together on that topic, I think we're going to continue to see more adoption as well as technological development. We've always been very great at, at bringing additional things to market that meet the needs of the people, whether it's aesthetic or whether it's just pure need. There are always minds to, to come together to put that in place. So it's really exciting to see, like I said, all this momentum and energy behind the energy transition. The Interchange is brought to you by Schneider Electric. Are you looking for more energy control, but worry about the upfront costs of a microgrid and renewables? We have you covered. Schneider Electric offers energy as a service for customers like you who spend $40,000 or more each month on energy. With energy as a service, you get customized solutions to help you meet goals for sustainability, efficiency, and cost control, including a microgrid and adjacent energy infrastructure. We also handle every step of the process and assume financial and operational risks. Upgraded electrical equipment, reduced emissions, predictable long-term pricing. Energy as a Service provides all this and more. Find the links in the show notes. Bloom Energy is accelerating the hydrogen economy by partnering with industry leaders to produce clean, green hydrogen. Bloom's electrolyzer uses electricity and heat from a variety of renewable energy sources, 
such as concentrated solar power, solar panels, and nuclear power to generate green hydrogen at the scale needed to tackle today's urgent climate crisis. Bloom's pioneering solid oxide fuel cell platform leverages technology originally developed for Mars and is uniquely designed to address both the causes and consequences of our changing climate, decarbonizing our world's hardest to abate sectors. Bloom's platform has the flexibility to be deployed as a distributed generator of electricity or as an electrolyzer to produce green hydrogen. Leveraging scale and experience, Bloom provides solutions needed to propel our world towards a better energy future. See the link in the show notes. You know, switching over to the other side of the equation on the growth is the supply chain. And I know that there's a lot of concerns growing. You look at SunDrive's accomplishment with copper replacing silver in their modules. Uh, while copper is more abundant, there are also limitations. And I know that we're seeing the cost increase for, for copper. But looking at the growth profile for solar and then just looking at some of the supply chain constraints that we have, what do you think needs to be done from a supply chain standpoint to make sure that we have the supply there to meet what we're forecasting is very healthy demand in solar going forward? Yeah, it's it's a, a big question. It's a big challenge. You know, the good news is it's that uh, I was going to say that there's not supply chain constraints at the moment, but that would be a lie. Um, this year, we're, we're kind of seeing some supply problems and prices are heading up in the in the short term. The prices of modules are, you know, back to 2019 levels. And in solar, we're kind of used to ever falling prices. So there's a, a little bit of a short term shock being delivered to the industry at the moment. And there's shortages in terms of polysilicon, polysilicon prices, which is the, the raw feedstock are way up. But, you know, it looks like that's not going to be a multi year trend that that's particularly um, being felt at the moment. But but looking out to 2023, 2024, things should come back into balance. In terms of, you know, you mentioned copper, you know, silver is an issue. Predicting where silver prices will go, I think, is a mugs game. I don't think that's anyone's guess, <laughs> but, but it's always good to use less of it. So looking at alternatives, like copper plating has been on the horizon more or less f forever in solar for as long as I can remember. But, you know, it, there will have to be some material replacement. And, and I think copper is probably a good replacement for silver. You can replace a lot of silver by using bismuth, but that's not particularly abundant. Some of those high efficiency cells that I was talking about earlier, these tandem structures, they use a barrier layer that, that uses indium. Again, indium's not abundant. So if you're talking about beyond the gigawatt level up to terawatt manufacturing, which is eventually what you need if the market is going to continue to grow, it really takes a refocusing of the industry into some of the replacement of these scarce materials. And there are discussions within the industry and ongoing uh, awareness about and programs to do some of these replacements, but they're just not here yet as far as I'm aware. And then the other side is kind of end of life, which is, um, you know, we're seeing increasing developments, but there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem within the solar industry at the moment in terms of end of life because, you know, recycling of solar modules is too expensive because there's not the volume. And so, and until we get the volume, they're not going to develop better recycling. And so it's a bit of a problem at the moment, but there are really good, again, the industry is aware of this issue. And, you know, there are some claims that there's this kind of mounting tidal wave 
wave of solar waste that's just off the horizon and we have nothing, no way of dealing with it. That's not true at all. And there are some pretty exciting technologies for the recycling of solar modules that bring back, you know, collect all this silver, collect this polysilicon material, even collect some of the kind of plastics that sandwich the, the module together. And, that, you know, you can do closed loop solar manufacturing. But it's really not there yet because um, the recycling doesn't have the volume to deal with at the moment. So it's not very um, advanced or sophisticated. Yeah, that seems like it would be a really good growth opportunity is the recycling. Because I think one of the concerns that you look at is the growth in electric vehicles, right? EVs take four times more copper to produce than a, a standard gasoline powered so you've got all these developments in terms of renewable energy that tend to sometimes go down to the same source of supply. Like it just in this example being copper, the demand just outstrips the supply, costs increase, and then you're back to the same spot about it not being cost efficient. But you bring up an excellent point about the recycling. Again, clean tech, recycling, and being able to help alleviate some of those supply chain constraints. Because the other thing that's a concern is that while they're, it's in abundance, they're also concentrated in various locations throughout the globe. And so it's, you, you look at it and say, okay, these, these areas are growing, but you know, we can only go to these two or three countries, and, and even the supply at this point isn't forecasted to be able to keep up with the demand. And so continued technological and development needs to happen, additional sources. But like we were speaking about earlier, that's what's nice about this industry is there's a lot of brilliant minds together that are focused on on these issues uh, and one that i tend to be focused on is is the supply chain because it, looking at forecasts is great but how does it impact that where are you going to get everything but you do bring up an excellent point on the recycling and and hopefully further developments can be made on that front yeah exactly and and policy will play a role you know this brings us back to the question you asked earlier in europe there's a program called pv cycle and there's european union level directives about electronic waste as well so there's you know and under the pv cycle program the suppliers of the panels pay us a very small amount that then goes into this pot to establish the recycling infrastructure that will be needed in 10, 15, 20 years when the solar module is no longer um, economically viable. So yeah, you know, policy does play a role there. And it's a bit, it's very patchy globally as to where there's take back programs are required or the, the industry suppliers are, are required to put these monies aside or invest in a fund to allow for recycling to be developed. While at the moment, there's still a handful of modules. Um, although, although they are coming, we are starting to see some modules reach end of life. Yeah, and, and so you said the typical lifespan is 15 years no, or so? it's more than that. Um, you know, 20 is kind of the basic, but but you can very easily go 25, 30. And, you know, some of the oldest solar modules in the world are still, you know, created in Bell Labs are still um, powering away at very, very low efficiencies. But, you know, after 20 years, you should be 80% of your nominal rated power output. So, you know, that's not too bad. If it was a 280 watt module, you know, you're still getting 240 watts from it. As an investor, you might think, well, let's replace them with something good. This land's worth a hell of a lot more than it did 20 years ago. But the module itself is 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 still all right. So um, if they're well made, you know their lifetimes can be can be pretty long, and that's some of the development we're seeing as well. You know, efficiency is important, but lifetime is also really important. So if you've got an asset that lasts longer, then it's cheaper in day one, right? 
It sounds like really recycling needs to to be developed to play a huge part in this because the other side of the equation could be to increase supply, right? Now that's going to require increased mining uh, for, for the resource, which it's a longer lead time than maybe your traditional oil well, right? I mean, I mean, these are long lead times. And so you could find yourself in a significant supply crunch in the interim, and you don't want to hinder the momentum that we have towards this. So it seems like it may be a combination of both in terms of getting increased mining for supply, at least for a little bit, but really trying to hone in on the recycling of these panels and building that up. Because again, it's, it's better for the environment, reusable, and to the extent we can get that cost effective and efficient, that seems like the way that a lot of energy should be put towards. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there are some really high value recycling processes out there that, you know, um, that, that module goes in, glass comes out, materials come out. You know, it's, it, so there are processes being developed and, and being trialed and being put into effect. But at this stage, it's, it's only early days. Where do you see overall governments uh, impacting this? Do you see it better in certain countries than others? Or do you think that there's more of a combination or like-mind thinking coming out of, you know, like I said, COP26 or other initiatives from a global standpoint that they're working more together on how to, suppl- how to, to get beyond some of these either supply chain issues or just the renewable uh, direction altogether? Oh, that's a complicated one. Um, <laughs> it's kind of two steps forward, one step back is <laughs> kind of how I would would describe it. Um, but, you know, the good thing, I think, is that, that governments should get out of the way, and they can now. Solar's cheap enough, you know? We just need fewer hurdles. Um, let us get on with it. Is, is my kind of key message. We don't need big fat feed-in tariffs, which is which we needed to get up on our feet. Now what we don't need if, is tariffs, and this is my particular um, opinion on this, um, we don't need more tariffs. We don't need, um, you know, anti-dumping duties. Um, we, we don't need these kind of interventions in the market because they do just distort it and make solar more expensive. It'd be interesting if you can figure out how to get government to step out of the way. <laughs> I think a lot of people would be interested to see how that happens. Indeed. Indeed. Our, our listener base will rise 10,000 times if we're able to solve that problem. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. I don't have too many insights there. <laughs> and I know we've probably talked a little bit about this today, but what are your thoughts on the future of solar. What do you think is the next big thing? Okay, like longer term, I think some of the, the technology stuff we've we've talked about, um, like uh, the, these perovskites and these, these tandem solar cells will be what will take efficiency to the next level. But if you're talking only two or three years, um, it's not so much solar, it's solar and what it's coupled to, and that will be energy storage. So that will be a co-location of large-scale solar and and battery assets at the same site or, or kind of adjacent or, or something like that. And these batteries are able to generate a lot of value at the moment, particularly at these early stages of the energy transition as energy networks or electricity networks get higher and higher penetration levels of variable renewable energy and at the same time some of these 
older coal-fired generators which really don't ramp up and down very well in terms of their generation as they start to come out of the market. You're seeing some really big spreads in terms of spot market pricing and, and these batteries are able to exploit these spreads and also as these coal assets come out of the market they can also uh, participate in frequency regulation markets. So this whole grid services play. And then the battery asset owners, who are likely also the solar asset owners, can really stack this value up. And then that kind of makes get, gets you over that hurdle because batteries are still really quite expensive. And, and before that volume really comes into the market, that's a way of making these battery assets pay and co-locating them with solar kind of brings down your development costs because you're already getting the land or the, the, the grid connection and kind of overcoming some of these kind of hurdles. And, and you can also charge the batteries with some very cheap solar energy at the middle of the day. I agree. And I think solar energy storage is going to be critical to the industry going forward. I mean, it, it takes all different aspects, right? But that's a whole other discussion for, for another day in terms of around the storage, because I think similar to what we've discussed today is that it's going to be the technological advancements. It's going to be the efficiency gains. It's going to be a lot of those things. So it's not just one area of renewables such as solar. It's going to, all the different components need that technological advancement, that ingenuity development that will continue to drive this initiative forward. Yeah, exactly. And also the lower cost of capital. And, you know, as the industry matures and, and investors become more comfortable with the risks, the technology risks that solar poses and also battery storage, that's also going to increase their appetite for, for reducing the cost of capital and taking some of these risks. Absolutely. That's a great point. I mean, as the investor universe does become more comfortable with it, which is different than what it was five years ago, right? Which was what we were earlier talking about is that the momentum behind it, the comfort around it. It's not a fad that you're going to get stuck two or three years down the road and, and said so that that's gone. It, it's not. And the investor universe is definitely getting more comfortable with that. And if you see in the capital markets, they are being rewarded for anything related to energy transition, a story, a, a drive behind it, what they plan on doing. If you compare it to those that haven't come out to say anything, uh, they're getting rewarded. And so you're going to see that flow through the cost of capital and being able to to fund some of these initiatives, which hopefully, right, will accelerate the development of the technologies uh, that we're talking about, whether it's the recycling, whether it's the battery storage, supply chain management, all those things combined. Uh, it just seems like everything is moving in the right direction. You just need to be mindful of the different pieces that are all tied to it and making sure that you're addressing each one. But I think we've got a lot of support behind all of them. Yeah, exactly. And and the sophistication as well from the investors, like you've said, and lenders as well. You know, some US banks, some banks in Germany and insurers are getting much more sophisticated in terms of how they understand solar and other renewable energy assets and battery assets and being really able to bring down this risk and understand what they're getting into. And that drives the solar industry to be cheaper, but also better to make better products that are longer lived and be more transparent about the whole supply chain that we touched on earlier and it's this sophistication really brings value with it well look as we discussed today i mean there, there are three key pieces to to the energy transition as it relates to solar it's the solar panel manufacturing it is the supply chain and it's the battery optimization and so a lot of that moving forward but i really appreciate you coming on the show today and giving us your thoughts around it very insightful and really appreciate your time thanks for coming 
No, it's my great pleasure, David. And it's really exciting for me to see, you know, the, the bigger end of town. Um, you guys who have been working in oil and gas for many years, taking a really close look at what what once was a little upstart industry like solar. But we're, we're kind of getting onto the main stage now. Solar is a market with huge growth potential. As we've already seen, developments in tech by individuals and small research bodies can send shockwaves rippling through the industry and change the future of renewable energy overnight. There are three areas where development is key. Manufacturing of solar panels themselves, optimizing supply chains to ensure supply keeps up with demand, and developing storage capability. If these components can be polished and fit together properly, the future of solar will be bright. I'm David Bammiller, and this is The Interchange Recharged. Join us in a couple of weeks for more insights into the technology that shapes the energy transition. Thanks for listening.